In a world where planet-threatening, civilization-ending, humanity-uniting movie tropes lie scattered throughout a sea of film, one disaster response expert, with the help of her plucky producer sidekick, will gather together a panel of experts to discuss. Wait, what? Why the f did they do that? That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. Hi, and welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. I'm joined today, of course, by the always sailing, never sinking Rev. <laughs> <laughs> I got to come up with a new one every time. Yeah, yeah. Released in 2009, starring John Cusick, 2012 was voted by NASA experts as the most scientifically flawed science fiction film ever made. Unlike so many disaster movies, Cusick's character wasn't actually the one who discovered the world was going to end. He just happened to be in the right or wrong place at the right time. A scientist in India who ends up being left behind to face a tsunami figures out that there is a new type of neutrino from a solar flare that is superheating the Earth's core. Cue the earthquakes, massive tsunamis, and Yellowstone turning it into a supervolcano that takes out Woody Harrelson. Since finding out the Earth was ending in 2012, world leaders have been working on a secret project involving giant ships to save humanity. Funds for this project are raised by selling tickets not to the people best qualified to rebuild society, but to the rich. Eventually, the world leaders are convinced to let more people on the arcs, even though they only have three of the five ships they had hoped to construct. In the end, humanity survives, the magnetic North Pole is relocated to Wisconsin, and Africa becomes the destination of the Arcs. And uh, we have a special guest today. One of the things I have to say that's great when you're starting a new podcast is having family members that you can convince to help you with your podcast. So joining us today is my dad, Dave Wisniewski. Dad, want to tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Dave Wisniewski. I'm a graduate from the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, served 31 years in the Coast Guard, primarily as an operator and an engineer, uh, specializing in uh, Arctic and Antarctic deployments and uh, repair of vessels. And then when I retired from uh, the Coast Guard, I went to work and was the lead uh, construction manager, engineer, and procurement uh, officer for Washington State Ferries to build uh, four new uh, Olympic-class ferries. I retired from there, and now I'm just enjoying uh, being retired. <laughs> Which means that he helps me with a lot of projects that need engineers around the house because Lord knows I'm not allowed to do it. Sorry, the only other thing I forgot was that uh, I sit on a, a National Science Foundation board for major projects on their ocean and marine science side. And uh, I work on the uh, reviewing the types of research vessels they're going to build. I remember way back when I first saw this movie, 2012. Um, my very first thought was, I wonder what dad thinks about how they built these boats. So it's really cool to finally be able to do a podcast where, where you're going to be able to explain all the cool stuff that goes with making ships of that size. Um, but I know Rev has a lot of the questions for you this time. So fire away. <laughs> so I, I think the first thing, just kind of going chronologically in the movie, the first kind of big event we see is the cruise ship that gets tipped over by this enormous wave. What kind of force from a wave would it take to capsize a, a ship like that? Well, the force would be a function of what it's 
called the riding arm. So essentially, you have the center of gravity way down low and the center of buoyancy above that. And when the wave hits it, it'll tilt the vessel over. Well, there's a there reaches an angle of um, list that it will reach that it cannot return back. So the moment arm to keep the vessel upright is exceeded and the vessel capsized. So it's really a function of the size of the vessel and how and actually how the wave hits the vessel too. Even small waves makes depending on the hull size and shape cause vessels to roll uh, in one direction or another. And a roll is something that's common and a list is something that is due to just a shift of weights. So there's two different things going on. If let's say you had damage on a vessel, if it was uh, flooding on the port side or which is the left side of the vessel, then the ship would list to the port side and it could take so much of a list. And as that list increases, then the underwater body shape changes and then your moment arm is reduced. And your moment arm is like a leverage. Uh, and if it doesn't have enough to get back upright, then you could have issues with capsizing. Yeah, because what happens in the movie is it hits it along, I think, the starboard side. So they're not bow to or anything. It hits on the starboard side and just tilts it all the way over. And then it then it turtles. That's just a sign, I guess, that the tsunami was coming or that was a pre-wave. I'm not sure. Um, usually when you know a tsunami's coming is you get a very low tide. All the water seems to disappear, which is essentially it being drawn out uh, and then getting large as it comes into shallow water. So when when a tsunami's coming, though, don't you take big ships like that further out to sea where the wave isn't going to roll them as much? Yes. Uh, the safest thing uh, for that, and even in uh, hurricanes and bad weather, uh, you either try to tie down in port, which is dangerous, or you get underway and try to beat the storm or go through it um, in deeper water. There's a lot to this movie. This was the first one that I watched that I think I actually a couple of times was like, what the hell is happening? There's just so many storylines. And ultimately, though, we get to, I think, the kind of purpose of our conversation, which is these vessels to save humanity. The first thing I want to ask is we jump ahead in the movie two years. And I remember when I was watching it thinking like, why, like, why is this random time skip happening? But they wanted that time for these engineers to build and design these these arcs. Is that something that could be designed and built in two years? Like how many people would that take? So I on the back of a piece of paper, I decided to take a look at what it would take. And is it doable mm. um, to save that many people? First off, the whole caveat of the movie is premised based on a tsunami going way inland. Tsunamis don't. Uh, they're not going to go that far inland. So if you take that off the table and just are in science fiction world um, and the tsunamis go that far, if you take a look at uh, the types of ships that we've had uh, built recently, uh, say one of them's like the uh, a cruise liner, Symphony of Seas. Uh, it'll hold almost 7,000 people and it takes almost 2,000 people uh, to provide the quality and the entertainment services. And the dead weight, which is the actual weight of the vessel, is about uh, a little over 18,000 tons. And they built it in two years, okay? So there's there's a there's a gauge to look at that. But uh, to save, let's say, 6 billion people, if you divide 6 billion divided into into that, the amount on that one ship, a little over 8,800, 8, that means you need to build 6,818,000 ships, essentially, <laughs> on par 
with the sympathy of the seas just to save the world. Okay. I like whole numbers. So let's just say 7 million ships. Now, assuming that's they're made out of steel, let's just make that assumption right now. Then you would go to GDP of the world and look at how many tons of steel I could make and process in two years. Mm. And it, it that math doesn't work out. Um, you would need um, about 123 billion metric tons of steel to build these ships to save the world. And when I looked at production, let's say in 2009, for uh, steel production worldwide, we produce 1.2 billion metric tons. So you're off by a factor of 100. So you couldn't physically build those ships because you don't have all the resources. Mm. Well, in the movie, though, Dad, they decided to only save the rich people. Because remember, they were selling tickets to billionaires. And they decided to only build seven of these arcs. And of the seven, four were built. And one was destroyed when part of the roof collapsed. So they ended up with only three ships. So if we were looking at them instead trying to build just four ships, is it still not possible? Yes, you could do it. But no, I wouldn't do it that way. Even if you're just going to save that small amount of people. What you have to keep in mind is that this tsunami doesn't last forever. It's temporary. So why, I know it's the dramatics of the movie, but if it was me, I would not be building that sophisticated of ships. I would be building what I know how to build now and realizing that you're going to keep the people maybe for a month on board uh, until you find dry land. So you really don't have to make them super fancy and you only have to make them and have endurance of, let's say, 45 days. So one of the other things I looked at was, well, how many ships, if I did it that way, would I need to save as many people as possible? Because you know you're not going to save them all. And it boils down to about 44,000 ships to save everyone. Now, building 44,000 ships that uh, each need about 20,000 tons of steel is about 900 million metric tons. Can't get there. So you're still <laughs> stuck. Production is really what's what's hurting you. And especially in this climate, there's not a lot of shipyards uh, as much as there used to be. Uh, so you're you're still not not there. Again, to save just the uh, people who have enough money to pay for tickets, and then other people, uh, you could build ships to do that. Well, the other thing though is we have to remember they started building the shipyard at the beginning of this. Remember there's the scene where they blow up that side of the mountain. So there's also a little bit of that entire internal scene where they had a shipyard. They built the shipyard in 2009 in the movie, which is crazy. Yeah. And I think what they really meant to say was they were building the structures to handle the ships, the cranes, uh, the trolley. If you see like they're in a kind of like in a garage and mm -hmm. they get roll, rolled out, well, that's doable. Uh, but if you were going to build the ships, uh, first off, you have to design them. So you can't really start laying steel until you have a design. So now you're cutting down those two years into even less. So let's say you do a super design, uh, not sophisticated in three months, then you have, you know, uh, uh, nine, 18, 21 months uh, to build them. You would need to start building the structures in different shipyards and shipping them in. So you would do it in a, a, a piecemeal way um, and in modules uh, like they do today. And since it's not going to be as sophisticated, uh, you're not really looking at a lot of piping systems 
or a lot of uh, other th- amenities since you're not going to stay on it, but for 45 days and essentially it'll beach itself. And then you have a permanent place to stay until you build something on, on land. Yeah. The element of them building these arcs inside of the mountain what an interesting place to choose. Like I realize they want it secluded so that people don't find out about it, but having to get all of the materials, all of the people, having to get everything there seems like it would be so cost prohibitive anyway in a exercise that, as you've pointed out, that's already financially very difficult is, a, is an interesting way to go about it. Well, and wouldn't people start noticing that steel and stuff is suddenly very rare? <laughs> uh, yeah, the price and the economics. And that's where where they made their decision of not telling everybody, I, I think is the wrong decision. Because if you, if you look at the number of vessels we have in the country, or I should say in the world, you can modify all kinds of different ships to carry as many people as you could. Now, you're not going to save them all. And the majority of them would be on coastal areas where the ships are easily accessible and easily to load. Um, that's why it was kind of strange that it was in, I know why they picked China. It, you can keep a secret better there than anywhere else. But why in the mountains, I'm not really sure. I would have picked a high elevation, but I would have picked it on a plateau somewhere where it was flat. Mm. Uh, and when the water came up, it would gradually come up and you'd float away. Mm. Uh, not having them in the mountains where there's all kinds of uh, valleys and ravines where the velocity of the water gets going pretty good. Well, as, as mentioned in our in our little bit of an intro, this is uh, voted by NASA the most scientifically absurd movie ever made. But the visual effects were good at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were great at the time. Now, the, the idea of a super volcano in Yellowstone is feasible. But yeah, the idea that a tsunami would actually be able to roll up so far that it's now hitting near Everest is... Um, you know, you'd have to have literally all of the ice in Antarctica has melted and and jammed down at like the same time. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and it's it's so interesting. You know, you talked a moment ago about the longevity that these boats need to have. Like, it seems like they're planning for a very long time. And then pretty instantly in the movie, they're like, oh, the water's receding faster than we expected. It looks like we'll be fine. Let's find the new high ground. And it's yes. so strange to have all these scientists, quote unquote, building these ships in this movie and you know, studying how the world's going to fall apart and them not realizing that the water is going to recede fa- faster than they expect. Well, and that's not the first mistake they make either, though, because remember in the in towards the middle, he's like, oh, no, this is happening faster than we thought it yeah. would. And that's why the last seven ships weren't finished. How much time do we have instead of seven days? Oh, we have three hours. <laughs> yeah, surprise. That's a pretty big uh, mix up there. There are two directions we could go here because I think yeah. the, the ship design of the arcs that they actually build the idea of them kind of being like, like they looked familiar to me in the sense of having been on a cruise ship. They kind of looked like lifeboats. Yeah. They look like the lifeboats. Right. Covered on the top. Yeah. Outside decks. Yes. And a lot of, a lot of sophistication that's not needed where they have the, uh, essentially the conning tower or the bridge and superstructure pop up out of the thing at the end. (laughs) That that's a lot of complexity mechanically, uh, electronically, automated, that you really don't need. But again, it looks cool in a movie. I was kind of struck by the idea of, you know, why not use or adapt the existing ships that we have as, as opposed to, you know, building from the ground up? You know, usually we ask the question of like, oh, how would you solve this problem in three minutes? I feel like the more interesting question for you and your background is, if this event was happening, 
how would you like what would be the ways that you would go about preparing for it? Sure. So if you took all the cruise liners, uh, you took all the tankers, uh, again, you need about 44,000 vessels, I figured, at a particular tonnage. I think in the world, you could probably come up with with that number. That's still only uh, not going to save everybody, but it it would save a majority, Mm. uh, a lot more people, provided that there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with that. One of the interesting things that in my career, I got to know some people at Boeing. And uh, once they built the uh, the large 707, I guess it was, the big jumbo jet uh, that could take a whole lot of people, they were actually looking at something even bigger than that. The problem with that is there was no airport that could handle it via passenger onload and passenger offload in a timely fashion. So you reach some choke points in, in that type of thing. But again, if you were going to grab all the vessels in the world that provide resources and like oil, gas, other products, uh, then I think the whole world population is going to eventually figure out there's something going on. Um, so again, you're if you want to do it in secret, they it was possible. Uh, not necessarily what they showed on the screen as far as sophistication, but it would be possible to build something that size and get away with it um, to a point. But um, the better solution would be to look at all the different vessels you have and change them into lifeboats, essentially. With the design of the ship, the way they ended up doing it, it was kind of designed to potentially be rolled over and not take on water. And, you know, it seems like it was built like those lifeboats are where they're intended, you know, because there's the lifeboat style that when the barrel goes in the water, it inflates and it's just basically a giant ring. But the ones that look like giant Twinkies seem like they're a better design for if you might be taking um, a lot of heavy seas or rolling over. So it looked like they designed it for that. Yeah, they they designed it. I, I'm going to make an assumption uh, looking at it. I don't know if anybody would survive in it, but you could design <laughs> it that it would be self-writing, meaning that if it capsized, it would turn over on itself and come back upright. You could do that. That would be a pretty big feat for a vessel that size. But it's possible. Yeah, it seems like they, in this movie, designed the ships as if they thought the storm they were enduring was going to continue for a very long time as opposed to break as soon as they were on the water. Exactly, exactly. Uh, And then where they were launching them in a highly dangerous area for a vessel, if if, if water was there, meaning there's hidden mountains and ranges and stuff that you could strike the bottom with. Uh, again, you now you're saying, okay, I got to make sure that I can withstand the forces of impact on some of these objects. So now you're even uh, more down the road of uh, production of uh, strong materials, steel, titanium, things like that. One of the things that they get hooked up on right at the end of the movie is not being able to close the back hatch. In the movie, though, they have automatic doors. That is for flood control. So it looks like they've thought of that. Uh, why they can't start their engines because the door is partially opened. I'm not sh- I'm not sure who, who did that limit switch, so to speak, uh, <laughs> on the doors. Uh, but there are naval vessels now that look like big boxes like that, that have ballast tanks, and they could vary their uh, depth of draft and flood their center uh, bottom deck the, dro- the doors open up and these uh, hovercraft and or vessels can 
sail right into the side this the hull, and then they close the doors and they pump out the water and they raise it up, uh, raise it up. So I'm sure they did have ballast tanks on those vessels. Looking at how sophisticated they were, they could vary their draft that way. Um, Can you explain what draft is real quick? Draft is the depth of the vessel from the waterline to the bottom of uh, the ship, the keel, which is the bottom. So um, if it was me, that loaning ramp understood is made to handle a lot of people um, and luckily real fast looking at the size of the door. But I don't think that would have been thought of that I need to load them as fast as possible. Mm. So I'm not sure why I would put that size door on there. Um Unless you're talking about the giraffes and things that have to <laughs> have to go in, but then you could have a specially cargo hatch for that. So, yeah, that's kind of a far reach. We could do a whole nother show on why it doesn't make sense to just load two of each animal onto the ship. <laughs> like I know that was a nod to Noah's Ark, but that's not how you maintain a species. <laughs> this is not going to go well for these animals. No, no, <laughs> unless they're no. there to be snacks. Like <laughs> no, so. One of the vessels is wrecked when the ceiling collapses and like drives things through it. But then one of the other big panic moments that happens is, oh my gosh, we're going to run into Mount Everest. Well, first, sorry, let me take a step back. Even before they run into Mount Everest, remember the two ships kind of brush up against each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's a huge squeaking sound when the squeal. Um, one thing the audience might like to know dad is what's the difference between a collision and an elision it's a very subtle nuance a collision is when you're hitting two moving up two ships moving mm-hmm. and an elision is when you hit something that's stationary mm. and it's a f- fancy term to get away from collision which sounds nasty because <laughs> you hit like a traffic stop you ran a stop sign and you hit somebody else so the two arcs collide but they're re- worried about running into Mount Everest. So I guess my biggest question is, with the way these ships are designed, shouldn't they be able to just kind of bounce off of Everest or like allied with it and keep going? Yeah, it depends on how they uh, built the structure, frame spacing, uh, plate thickness, and speed. I mean, it's all about momentum. So it depends on how fast. I, I don't see those big lumbering things moving at uh 20 or 30 knots towards that um, mountain. But again, uh, they put it in a place where water's rushing in, if it could actually get that high, and it would pick up speed as it went through. Um, So it could push the vessel, but again, it may not not be strong enough to punch a hole in it. But uh, it'll bend the steel and, and potentially rip it. I mean, if it gets caught like a can opener and pushed along the sides. I would assume that there may be double bottoms in this thing. Uh, so that would protect you from some of that. Because that that sort of elision is what happened to the Titanic, right? Where it ran up against the iceberg, the iceberg and it tore down the side? Yeah. Uh, Arctic ice, uh, multi-year ice, which the iceberg was, is uh, essentially almost as hard as mild steel. The salt leaches out of it and the ice gets stronger and stronger harder and harder, depending on your definition. So when you go up alongside it, uh, yes, it can open you up just like a can opener. Uh, back in the mid-80s, the one of the Coast Guard cutters, Westwind, uh, the scientists, uh, were, they were down in Antarctica. Um, I was on the polar sea at the time, about 800 miles away. And they 
The captain of the ship decided to take the vessel close to the Ross ice shelf, the ice shelf, and do some work with the scientist. Well, he wasn't paying attention or he got caught off guard, but the wind shifted, the ice jammed him in and pushed him up against the ice shelf. So now we're just talking about wind movement. So it pushed the icebreaker up beside the ice shelf. It created a list on the vessel. So it was the ice shelf is on the starboard side. It listed to the port side, or I should say it healed to the port side because it was just the wind. And it got pulled alongside the Ross ice shelf. And it ripped a hole in the vessel, 30, 40, 50 feet long, and caused some damage inside the vessel before they were able to get away. It was the only half-inch steel. It wasn't the HY-80 thick stuff on the bottom, but it was strong enough to open up that vessel like a can opener. So on the Titanic, yes, the same thing happened as far as speed and going along the the vessel. And the Titanic had, at that time, damage control stability was watertight bulkheads, but the watertight bulkheads didn't go, they didn't go all the way to the main deck watertight deck. They only went so far up by design. This was a pretty modern design at that time, but you have something called progressive flooding. So if you can't control and stop the flooding in one area, and as the vessel takes on more water, it starts getting deeper, the draft increases, and then they had what's called progressive flooding where water would go from over one bulkhead to the next to the next to sink the whole vessel. What is the point of no return when it comes to something like that, a a vessel taking on water where it is going to sink? Game over, time to jump. (laughs) Um, It's called Archimedes Principle. You have to displace as much water with the hull as the vessel weighs. If the vessel weighs more than it can displace, it sinks. So that's the simplest term for it. Now, there's a lot of other different things that happen during flooding, If you're flooding large spaces that go across the width of the ship, you have what's called a free surface effect. And that's kind of like if the vessel uh, heals to the port or starboard side, all the water on one side goes rushing over to the other side, and then all the weight is shifted its center of gravity over to that side. It reaches a point where if you get deep enough uh, of flooding and you're in rough seas, rough weather, and you're rolling you have a potential of not being able to come back and you actually capsize. So you don't have to have enough water in there to sink you. You just have to have enough water in spaces that have wide uh, wide compartments, widths, that if you, if you rolled from one side to the other or healed from one side to the other, you're going to not be able to come back. And that's where your center of gravity gets above the center of buoyancy. When the center of gravity gets above the center of buoyancy, that means it wants to go down. It wants to get lower than buoyancy, so it flips and it capsizes the vessel. I know that you're both familiar with a lot of the ports and areas around the United States. How far did that naval ship have to travel to crush the White House? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, it was an aircraft carrier, and I couldn't quite figure out how it got from, let's say, Nofal, where they would tie up all the way to D.C. Uh, Again, it goes back to the premise of how far does a tsunami go inland? And that's what kind of blows all that apart. But it looked pretty neat, though. Well, I know that this is not necessarily a uh, a podcast where we reference like current events that are going on, but something related to what we talked about a few episodes ago. 
I didn't think it was worth noting that the USS the Sullivans has taken damage oh. and is taking oh. on water in port. Right now? Yeah. It happened two days ago. They brought it in um, like for maintenance and apparently had a elision. Is that what you said it was? Sure. So they hit bottom somewhere, yep. struck yeah. something. Uh, so they are uh, on the shore of Lake Erie and they're working to to patch it and get it back above water. Wow, it's actually listed as it has partially sunk. Yeah. Um, I, I That was a museum, I think. Um, yeah. That vessel. Yeah. Yep. So when I was on the Great Lakes, we were working and breaking ice. The, one of the vessels, and we happened to have gone aground, one of the vessels, Coast Guard vessels, um, was called the Arundel. It was a ocean-going tug that was on the stationed on the Great Lakes, uh, the Coast Guard owned. Uh, they actually struck bottom next to us during a heavy seas and punched a hole in their one compartment. And I think they were uh, very close to sinking. So they ended up going upriver, the St. Clair River, and we ended up getting a dry dock dropped in the water fast enough to literally run the ship into the dry dock and lift it up before it would sink. It, the Sullivan, I'm pretty sure, is a museum on the Great Lakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, named after the, I think, the five Sullivan yep. brothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We talked about them on... Um, Alien Covenant. We yeah. talked about it in, in Alien Covenant because we were talking about how at the beginning of the movie, um, all of the crew is married to each other. And so we were talking about why you don't have spouses in a chain of command. And like during times of war, you can't have a bunch of siblings on a ship anymore. And it was, you know, the Sullivans and all Right. That. Yeah, they changed the rule. Now, mind you, you retired in 2003 and I applied for OCS like the week after you retired. That was taking the don't be same family members in the military to an extreme but um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Fun thing, just a personal point is my dad retired off of the Coast Guard Cutter Healy. That was the last ship he was on. He was the CEO of it. Um, and the kind of fun tieback was my last ship I was on was I did a deployment on the Healy. So it was it was a lot of fun. Hmm. But that's why I loved having uh, him join us today to talk about what you would do to build one of those. Because as you can imagine, icebreakers can take a serious beating. Um, Dad, can you real quick explain why an icebreaker would be potentially a good survival vessel for something like this? Mainly because of how the structure is is built below the waterline as far as um, anywhere from an inch to an inch and three quarters uh, steel. Um, some of it is ASTM 537. Some of it is HY80 or HY100 steel, which is a high strength steel. ASTM 537 steel is a steel that keeps its ductility in very cold environments. Mm -hmm. Hence, you're not looking at cracking the steel, so to speak, when you're going and breaking ice. That's not to say that damage can't be done. I mean, um, in the Arctic, uh, like I said, the multi-year ice is is, uh, there. But because of the thickness and the frame spacing that is done, um, it makes it uh, very uh, strong in an environment of of ramming through the ice. but an icebreaker's job is not to break ice. It's to try when you're in the Arctic or Antarctic, you're trying to find your ways around large pieces of ice. It's much more efficient, and you your uh, fuel lasts a lot longer. We joked that uh, when Dad worked washing, for Washington State Ferries, that he wasn't going to drive a ferry because before his job was back up and hit it again because of the way icebreakers work. Um, they actually push. They they kind of come up on the ice and then push it down a little with the weight. They don't just like slam into it to break it. They use their weight to break it. And that was something interesting when I was looking at the design of the ships in 2012. They're very flat bottom round. 
Um, when you're looking mm-hmm. at different types of ship, if you're building for speed, um, if you're building, you know, for ease of movement through the water, you kind of get a V-like shape. But when you're building for something to be a little bit more stable and sturdy, um, you build them a little bit rounder on the bottom. Depending on uh, how the vessel has to impact the ice. So the the polar class icebreakers look like an upside down football. Uh, when you look at the below the waterline, looks like somebody cut a football in half and that's what's below the waterline. On the Healy, uh, it, what we call the mid body, which is forward of, of the stern and aft of the bow areas, it's a little bit more square. Um, so it's more stable um, in open ocean, but it does cause it to have a larger turning radius when trying to break ice uh, and making turns. Like the polars, as they make a turn, they'll kind of roll a little and, and bank into the turn and break the ice. And the Healy, it's kind of like its shoulders get stuck trying to do that. So it's got to take a wider turn uh, to do it. And also the polar class are rated uh, as a, I don't think it's a level 10, I'm not sure, uh, high Arctic region icebreaker. And the Healy is rated for a mid-Arctic region icebreaker, three-season type icebreaker. So you can still cause damage to either one of them, um, but it's it's hard to do unless you don't know what you're doing. You had mentioned the the thickness of the steel below the water on the icebreaker. For comparison, what would it be on a on a different kind of a naval vessel? Anywhere from three eighths to half inch at the most. Half inch would be pretty thick. Again, depending on the frame spacing and depending on the use of the vessel. If it's a small patrol craft um, which has a planing hull, the object is to make it as light as possible so it'll get lift and go faster. Um, if it's not for that. Uh, then it just depends on uh, what type of a combatant or vessel it's going to be used for. Okay. I'm just guessing now, but three-eighths would be a pretty close to what I would think. Uh, again, depending on frame spacing. So when I say frame spacing, I mean it like on a house, when you look at the roof and the trusses go across, uh, turn those upside down and that's frames in a, on a vessel. And so we're talking three, some in some cases, four times as thick as those ships when it comes to the, the steel below the water. Yes. And that's called the ice belt. So you take the vessel's hull and estimate about where you want to start the strengthening of the hull for the ice. You go there and from there below is going to be the thicker steel. From there above, it's usually uh, on a breaker, it's usually half inch uh, steel. All right. Well, we should pour one out for uh, Woody Harrelson's, what was the guy's name? Charlie. Because <laughs> he was blown up by Yellowstone yeah. and the Great and, Volcano. Yeah, Woody Harrelson. Yeah. Yep, yep. Easily my favorite character in the movie. Um, so thank you for joining us at Disaster Peace Theater. Thanks, Dad, for joining us. And we will catch you next time. This episode of Disaster Peace Theater, hosted by Anna Visneski was edited and produced by Brandon Wentz, with intro by Dan Cruiser and Chris Hill. You can contact us, learn more about the hosts, and check out our merch store at disasterpiecetheater.wtf.